0: Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at ten thirty a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. Pride, that's like, oh yeah, I can. You want to bet? I will totally do that right now. And so, in true good manliness stories. There was a boys weekend I had with me and my college buddies when I was a sophomore in college. It was summertime. A bunch of us dudes were getting together and we're like, all right, let's just go have a boys weekend at this guy's cabin. His parents had a super nice cabin, jet skis, the whole nine. There was a bunch of us guys getting together. We had late night pizza. We were grilling burgers at 11 p.m. It was awesome. It was great. I loved every single second of it. So the next day... We're, we're, you know, just going around on the jet ski, we're tubing, and we're doing the whole nine yards that go along with the cabin. The cabin life is epic. And, you know, we're... Jake and I, Jake is my best friend. He's the best man at my wedding, like one of the closest people in my life. And, uh, we were the two lake rats of the group. We grew up on the lake. We spent our time in the lake. The lake was like our place to be. And so we're driving people around in the tube and, you know, we're, we're talking smack. They're like, I bet you can't, I bet you can't get us off in, in two minutes. And we're like, yeah, okay, come on now. Like we got 30 seconds if we need to. we'll, we'll let you think you're good. And so eventually, Jake and I started getting a little smart with each other, and we're like, there's no way that any one of you chumps could get Jake and I off of a tube. There's no way. Like, like we we are anchors on that tube, and they're like, No, they're like, we 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 could do it. And we're like, no, you can't. There's no way inhumanly possible that there is a way for you to throw us off of a tube behind this jet ski. There's no way. And so one of the guys is like, All right, fine. Let's see what you got. Jump on the tube. And we're like Okay, fine. So we, we, we did all the safety checks. Have you driven a jet ski before? Yes. Okay, perfect. Are you comfortable doing this? Yes. We're not going to be endangered in this scenario. Yes. There were some fine prints on this. Because I later found out that he had driven a jet ski before, but he had never pulled anyone or anything behind a jet ski before. So, it was going really, really well. Jake and I were on this tube and things were going well, and he tried to like just speed up going straight. But any good tube driver knows that if you just go straight, it's easy. It's terrifying because you know the water is now cement, but it's easy. And so, what happened was eventually they started wising up. And so, they started like just doing S turns with the jet ski. And there was at one point, my buddy and I, Jake, Jake and I were doing like facing this way on the tube. And all of a sudden, they went back that way. And I saw the rope slack right here. And we're like, uh-oh. Boom! <laughs> Just slam. Like, I'm pretty sure I still have whiplash from this story. But we still stayed on. We were, we were holding true to our bet. And then they really got smart. And so what they did is they, they pinned the jet ski to the bars. And then they would go straight and on a moment's notice, turn left and just whip the tube out that way. It was bad news. The first time we're like, oh boy, (laughs) we should not have talked this much smack. And on the second turn, we're going this way at a diagonal line. And then he's got, again, he's got it pinned. They turn the jet ski 90 degrees. And so the tube just flies out that way. We are coming this way, trying to, trying to save it, but it's too much. All of a sudden we dip the edge of the tube and both of us come off. I have vivid memories to this day of me skipping on the water. (laughs) I went off on my back and I skipped and we were going so fast. It naturally moved me this way. I bounced off my shoulder back to my back and then splash. I counted three distinct skips before we landed in the water. Three. And so we came up like half dead, like, uh. And so we asked, like, dude, what were you doing? Like, that's like, there's there like trying to like throw us off the tube, and there's like death, all right? And you were like on that line. And he goes, like, we said, like, how fast were you going when you threw us off? He goes, I looked down, and we were at 47 before he whipped us so you know like when when you're going off to the side you're going faster than the jet ski right Like, like you are going way way faster and so i learned from that moment two things one be careful how much smack talk you lay down but two read the fine print because i should have known this particular individual Probably doesn't have a ton of towing experience and driving a jet ski for pleasure and pulling somebody on a tube at 47 miles an hour is a very, very different thing. Very different. And so I'm pretty sure I have not stepped foot onto a tube since that, that time. I'm pretty confident because there's only so much like I was like taking water out of my ears for like the next 10 days. I was waterlogged beyond measure. So let that be the lesson this morning. Don't go on a tube if you're going to go on a tube, just don't talk smack because it doesn't go well. We are in our summer series, and I, I love talking about summer things because summer is my favorite time of the year, bar none. I love it with every ounce of my being. And so that's why a few months ago when it was freezing cold and I was going, I cannot wait for summer. I was like, this summer at church, we're going to do a Fishing with Gramps series because it's going to give me an excuse to talk about summer stuff. And so if you're new with us, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here, and I'm just really excited that you decided to spend your morning with us. Uh, We're glad that you are here exactly as you are. Uh, We're a little bit of a unique church. Uh, Again, I I look somewhat professional, but if you see me around town throughout the week, I just look like a casual high schooler, middle schooler, uh, just how it works. But we're glad you're here nonetheless. And so we are doing this thing called Fishing with Gramps, and, and the whole purpose of this series is when you're fishing with a grandparent, you're fishing with someone that's older than you. When the lines are in the water and you're out in the middle of the lake and you're just like your mind's at peace, there's obviously usually these conversations that take place that are just like life changing. Like like grandparents are notorious for just like dropping just bombs of wisdom on you out of nowhere. Like we're just hanging out and all of a sudden like you say this one thing that just like sticks with you forever. And so we've kind of been, t- you know, walking through that, talking through that, through this book called of James in the Bible. But this morning, a, a phrase that, that goes very well into my story and a phrase that, if like for real, if I had a dime for every time my dad told me this growing up, I would have rent-free college for life. Like, I heard this phrase so, so much that I'm almost annoyed at how much I heard it. And I'm, trying, I'm starting to wonder why he told me this. But looking back on the tube story, maybe I'm starting to kind of come into clarity. But my dad always said, if you're going to talk the talk, you better you guys have heard it too. It's a good one. One that, again, I heard all the time growing up, and I'm starting to see why. Maybe my, my, my smack talk is a little thick sometimes. I've, I've since wised up and not talked as much smack because it usually leads to pain, I've found. But it's one of those things where when you are, when you are smack talking, you're talking the talk, you better, you better back it up, right? Because if you don't, like you're eating a whole bunch of crow, and it's no fun doesn't taste good. But let's be honest. When you are talking smack, when you are laying it on, and it's your turn to show it, and you come through, you feel like the king of the world. Like, yeah, yeah I knew this would happen. I knew it. I'm good at what I do, all that type of stuff. If you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. James chapter 2 When we read the Bible, something we have to continually keep in mind is this whole idea of context. Because a lot of times when we read the Bible, it's kind of just like, oh, that's a good model that I gonna take right to my life. And it's really, really good. And a lot of those things directly translate. However, the importance of context is that this particular part of Scripture, this part was written to a specific group of people at a specific time. And so it's important to understand that context because there's a lot of hidden elements to it that make this message all the more important. This letter, the book of James, James chapter 2, is written to a group of Jewish believers. These were people who grew up in the Jewish faith from birth all the way until their current stage of life. They grew up following devout Jewish practices until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, they are like, oh, I'm going to believe in Jesus now. But I think what's important is to understand that Jewish faith is very, very rigid. It's very, very stern. It's, there's a, it's a built on commitment. It's built on dedication. It's built on ret- ritual. For example, in the Jewish faith, there are a lot of dietary restrictions you can't do because of your faith to this day. It was very interesting when we were in Israel, when I went to Israel in 2017 to, to go and do an extended study with a bunch of my classmates, three weeks away from my wife that we are, were newly married. Great trip. Longest three weeks of my life. But it was awesome because we just got to understand this Jewish culture. And to this day, kosher is a legitimate thing. Our guides are telling us that they have separate freezers for meat and for dairy products. They can't touch. They can't even share a freezer space. So all you meat lover pizzas fans, don't go to Israel. Doesn't exist. Cheeseburgers don't exist because you can't have dairy with meat. And you're like, what's the point of that? It's part of the Jewish faith. It's a dietary restriction that goes to their faith. There's something called a ceremonial cleanliness. If you're going to go into the temple, if you're going to go into the synagogue, you have to be ceremonially clean. So to do that, there's these things you have to do, these rituals. Like if if you're unclean, if you you have sin, if you did something you shouldn't, before you go into the temple, you have to go through a cleansing process. You have to take a bath. I would love to adopt this for junior high camp. Because they smell before we even leave. First year at camp, my wife came to pick us up. She almost passed out in the van on the way home because it smelled so bad. If you have teenagers, young kids, do me a huge favor. Pack deodorant. They won't put it on, but I'll make them put it on because it's needed. Ceremonial cleanliness. They had to do a pilgrimage. They had to go to Jerusalem periodically to go and, and, and pay homage to that part of it. They have to honor the Sabbath. They can't work on Sundays at all. Even to this day, again, in Israel, they said, like, if you forget to turn on your air conditioning unit in Israel, on the Sabbath, you're gonna sweat because so you can't turn on the AC. It's considered work. You have to honor the Sabbath. And then males had to be circumcised. There's all these different things that the Jewish faith really was centered on works. So you had to do these certain things. You had to do the rituals, you had to do the things. You had to do all of X, Y, and Z because that's the way you honor God. That's the way that you love God. That's the way that you serve God. When you go through and do the things you're supposed to do, that is how you experience. God. And if you didn't do these things, if you didn't do these works, you were considered unholy. You were considered unfavored in the eyes of God, who's very, very rigid. So when Jesus came along, these, these Jewish people who grew up their whole life with this rigid structure, this rigid thing, they, they have grown up their whole life knowing this. Jesus comes along, and we see this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. What he's trying to say is he goes, all you brothers, all you sisters, all you people who've grown up your whole life trying to perform for God, and you're burdened, and you're weary, and you're just like exhausted, because that's exhausting to just have to follow all these certain things all the time. He's saying, just come to me and believe in me, and that's enough. You don't have to do all X, Y, and Z to love me. You just have to believe in me, and that's enough. And it was like a cool drink of water on a hot day. These Jews heard this, and they're like, yes, that sounds best. That sounds perfect. And so you might imagine there was kind of a swing in the other direction, right? They grew up their whole life having to work, having to do all these things for God and do this and don't do that and all these very, very strict, rigid things that are super numerous. And here comes Jesus saying, Don't worry about that stuff, just trust in me. But what was happening is there was now a pattern for these Jewish believers if they're going, We got Jesus, we can just. Take it back. Don't have to do a whole lot. Like, we're good. We're covered. We're fine. Don't have to do anything. And so that's where James is seeing this pattern. He's going, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes, Jesus gives you a fresh start. Yes, Jesus is enough. But we're called to follow and emulate the life that he set before us. And so, yes, there's freedom in him, but Jesus also spent his life serving other people, helping other people. Jesus got away by himself to spend time with the heavenly father. He he made sure that was tight. He made sure that was really, really tight knit. But then when he went out into the world, he went out into the cities. Jesus spent his time doing things for other people, serving other people, loving other people. That's what he did. It was both personal commitment and others focus. And James has seen this pattern of they've lost the others focus part. It's just all about me. I got Jesus. What do I need to do anything else for? I'm good. And James says this. I think it's so, so strong in James 2.17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. If If you're not working, if you're not doing actions, your faith is dead. You still have a faith, but it's not alive. Those are strong words from our friend James. Those are strong sentiments. Basically, to come full circle, he's saying, guys, you can have faith all you want. You can say you love Jesus all you want, but if you don't back it up, if you don't show up by what you're doing, then it's really not alive at all. You're talking the talk, but you're not walking the walk. And it's strong, strong words. I love the imagery he uses. He's basically saying, he, he, he mentions this in verses 15 and 16. If you see a person on the side of the road with this connotation of being homeless or a beggar saying they don't have any food, they don't have any clothes to keep them warm, and you come along, you you, you see them, you see them in their current state, and you go, hey, go in peace, keep warm, and keep well fed. I love what the New Living Translation of this of this text says. It says... Goodbye. Have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. What good does that do? You know, like I, I read this story this week, and I was like thinking to myself, I have this vivid picture of, of what it would look like in 2022. If you if you came here down on Norris Lake Road, it's kind of a windy road all the way to St. Francis over here. I had this picture this week of this person who's on the side of the road. There's not a whole ton of traffic, but he's on the side of the road, and he's got the gas tank. You know, the gas lid open, and he's standing on the side of the road like this. All of us would be like, oh, that guy ran out of gas. He needs to lift into town. Imagine you drive up next to this guy. He's like, yes. You run out of gas? Yeah, he did. You need to lift into town to get some gas? Yeah, I do. Cool. Hope you find a ride and drive off. <laughs> Can you imagine? If we're being real, I bet that guy would be like, (laughs) as you drive by, you know, like what good does that do? Hey, hope you find a ride. Like when you are perfectly capable of giving him a ride yourself. Now there's the whole safety concern in this world right now, but we're not, we're just going to pretend that doesn't exist. James is like, what are you guys doing? You love Jesus. That's awesome. But there are people in this world that need him. And they're right in front of you. And you're not meeting the needs. James is just coming at him because he knows that a faith that is alive, not dead, a faith that is alive is one in which Jesus moves through you to bless other people. A faith that is alive, a faith that is palpable, a faith that is just real and concrete is one in which you have this incredible experience with Jesus. And it inspires you to be different but to see difference in the world and to let God use you. You have these sweet moments with God, whether it's here in this church and you, and we have some fantastic worship. Can I just tell you, it was so fun for me to walk in uh, coming into the second song and to see so many of you in the room, just with your arms raised, like going after Jesus. That was awesome. You have these cool, cool experiences with God, whether it's in the sermon, in worship, in, in, in your own living room, you have these moments where God just speaks and you sense him, and you feel him, and you know him, and it's this incredible experience. But then what needs to happen is when you have those moments when they're real, when they're full of who God is, it challenges you to love others in a greater capacity. When you have this moment, it changes you, and you. I want other people to have this experience too. It's powerful stuff because you know what it feels like when it happens to you. You know what it feels like when it's you who's in that need and God comes through for you. You know the joy and the freedom that comes there. And when it's real and it's alive, you want that same feeling for somebody else because you know what it's like. James talks about these deeds, he calls them, or works. Other translations consider them actions. A, whatever, whatever word you're looking for, basically what he's saying, if we were to bring this into our current context, paying for someone else's meal who's in a tough spot. Plenty of you guys have done this in this place, where it's like you see someone who's going through a tough financial hardship, and you're like, you know what? They're not even asking for money, but I'm going to bring them over a meal. I'm going to pay for their dinner tonight. You do those types of things. Going out to help out a person in need when you have other things you can do. We're busy people, right? We're really, really busy people. But when there's someone who's in need and you drop everything to go help them, that's a deed. That's a work. Here's one that's more subliminal, but even more difficult. Actively forgiving someone who's wronged you. That is a deed. A deed that requires work and sacrifice. Because it is so much easier to harbor that just unforgiveness. They wronged me in the worst way. I am not going to forgive them. But when you do, it's a deed. Praying for someone or with someone who needs it. Offering a listening ear to someone who needs support and encouragement. These deeds, these works, are you actively doing something for somebody else. As James says, you can claim you have faith, but if you don't do anything with your faith, it's pointless. They're strong, strong words. And the point he's trying to make is that your faith is what it is. And the actions you do should be indicators of that faith. Indicators. They should be the things that exemplify what you believe. Your motivation for doing these things is because of who God is inside of you, and you want that to be shown to the outside world. The problem when these deeds, or what the problem with these deeds, is that when we treat them as something they're not supposed to be. James chapter two. Let's continue the story, verse eighteen. Someone will say, "You have faith; I have deeds." But show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. I love this translation. If you, are, if you Every once in a while when I'm, when I'm studying, and whether personally or for, these me, or for these messages, I have a few translations I look at, but there's one that I love to just reference periodically called The Message because it breaks it down to such good, good terms. I want, I want to read this to you. So I thought this is so, so good about what James is actually trying to say. Verse 18, I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, Sounds good. You take care of the faith department. I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God? but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful. That's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do them? James doesn't mince words very well. (laughs) He just comes after us. He comes after the Jews. He just says it how it is. And what I love about this is what James is essentially trying to say here. Is he's saying, even demons believe in God and it does them no good. They actively try and destroy Christians, but they still know who Jesus is. So he's saying, guys, it's one thing to believe in him, but it's another thing to follow him. You can acknowledge that Jesus is real, but to trust him with your life is a whole other thing. And when you do it, it challenges you, it inspires you for change. Here's how I see it. Works are meant to be a byproduct of your faith, not a prerequisite. What does that mean? Your works are not the thing that make you a Christian. It's not the good things that do that make you a Christian, that make you favored with God. It's because you're favored with God. It's because Jesus loves you and gives you freedom that we do works. You see how that works? It's not just like a weird like rephrasing of things. It's one of those things where because of what we have, because of who Jesus is, it challenges us to do good things. We don't have to do good things to to be favored by him, to be loved by him. It doesn't work that way. It is purely based on who Jesus is. I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. A lot of people will come to me and say that, Derek, the the Bible tends to contradict itself. Like, how do you mean? Like, yeah, this, this is a perfect example that I hear all the time. Paul says our faith is not by works, that our faith is just purely on who Jesus is. But then James says that if you don't have works, your faith is dead. How does that reconcile? And it reconciles just right by here. It's not what you do that makes God love you. It's not what you do that makes him love you and give you that freedom and give you that eternal life. It's not what you've done or all the good stuff that has that makes you go into heaven. It's who he is. It's a gift. He paid the price. Yet at the same time, it's when you have that thing that it inspires you to do good works. What's so interesting is this is Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine. Paul goes on in verse 10 of that same chapter to say, How good are the works that God has prepared for them to do? There's a first prerequisite step, and then there is a following after step. The prerequisite step is that Jesus loves every single person in this room, every single person in our community, every single person in our world. And it doesn't matter what you've done, who you are, what life has brought you, that does not change. He loves you exactly as you are. And he wants nothing more than to show you that and experience that love personally. That's why he came to do what he did. That is the prerequisite. Nothing you can do, good, bad, or ugly, will change the fact that Jesus loves you exactly as you are. Nothing Good or bad. someone needs to know that today. Because the reality is some of us walked into this place going, I'm not sure about this whole church thing. I'm not sure what this all looks like because I have a rap sheet of stuff that I've done in my life. And guess what? It doesn't matter because he loves you the same way. And on the same token, if you're one of these people that is like, I just want God to love me more. I just want to do more for God. I want to do all this stuff. And you're just burning yourself out trying to get the love that's already been given to you. That's the prerequisite, is that it doesn't matter good, bad, or ugly. He loves you. But when you have that love, you back it up. When you have that love, you are different. All the parents in the room, you understand what I'm talking about. Whether your kid is driving you nuts, which happens a lot, We love them, but sometimes they drive you wild. While you don't like them nearly as much as you do other times, and those moments doesn't change how much you love them. Yet at the same time, when they do something that is just super cool and super sweet, you're like, I love you, you know? Same way here. The life of faith is not a transaction. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't serve your way into heaven. There's no imaginary scale when we get up there someday going, you've done this much bad, this much good, and let's see which one wins out. It's not a transaction. Do you know why? It's because the price is too high. You can't buy your way. Nobody can because the standard, the price, if you will, is perfection. The price to get into heaven is too high for any human being to. Get. Because the standard is perfection. The word is called holy. You've heard it a bunch of times in church, outside of church, holy. It means to be unblemished, completely free of any form of uh, deformity, any form of blemish, holy. And so the standard for that is unwavering. You need to be completely perfect. So you meet someone like Mother Teresa who gives her life to go and help orphans in India and does all these amazing things. She is one of the probably most Holy people that we can think of, one of the most Christian-like, God-like women in this woman in this world. But then we can also think of people who are very, very vile and evil in this world. But guess what? The price to get into heaven is hundred percent. So whether you're ninety-nine percent good, like Mother Teresa, or nine percent good, like a vile person, it doesn't matter. They both fall short. It's not a transaction. You can't buy your way into heaven. Because the price is too high, which is why Jesus came and paid the price for us. Because he was enough. He came and lived a sinless life, devoid of any form of evil, devoid of any type of negative thing. He was perfect. He had the price. And he laid his life down. And the reason he went to the cross is that instead of, of us trying to say, you know what, I've only got... I've only got 25% good in me. He's saying, it's all good, I already paid for you. You can still experience me, you can still experience heaven if you believe and trust in me. I paid your bill already. And when you have that happen in your life, when someone pays your way, it changes you. It changes you. When you can't attain something and somebody does it for you, you automatically see the person who paid for you differently. someone pays your way and does something else for you that you couldn't possibly do, you're going, I want to honor you and pay you back by doing something good that would come back on you. This whole idea of pay it for, where do you think that comes from? When you hear of this person paid for this coffee and so they paid for that coffee, when something good happens to you, you can't help but feel led to do something in return. It is what it is. And so doing good things isn't what makes us believer. What it does is good things prove something externally that we believe internally. It's an indicator externally of something that happened internally. If we, It'll prove that what we believe inside is actually legitimate. When you are using your body, your faith, your works to help other people, it proves that Jesus moved inside of here. It's tangible. You can't say you're a professional basketball player but never dribble the ball. You can't say you're a world-class fisherman but never bait the hook. You can't say you're a genius yet never take the SATs. We can't say we love Jesus but not love his people. It's not, it's not cohesive. As James says, it, it's a hand in the glove. Faith and works, they work together. So when someone calls you up to vent and to talk to you and just say, about well, how awful their coworker is or how terrible life is going right now, we sit and we listen. Even though we got stuff we got to be doing, even though it's draining to hear all the negative talk, we sit and we listen. Because we were once in a spot where we did the same to somebody else. And they listened to us. They understood us. And they spoke truth to us. When someone wronged you in the worst way, as I mentioned earlier, something that caused permanent damage, permanent scarring, terrible, terrible things. When we forgive that person, even though they don't deserve it, it's a work, it's an action, because we know what it's like to be fully messed up, yet still receive forgiveness. We know what it feels like, and we want someone else to experience that. When we see a person struggling financially, whether it's a homeless person on the side begging for food, whether it's a person in the line at the grocery store who has to go and put things back and take it off the belt because they can't pay for it enough, when we see someone in our life that we know is just in a really, really deep bind, when we see that and we say, you know what? I'll pay for you. Why would we do that? Because we know what it's like to be in that situation, and we know what it's like when the opposition has been so strong, yet we come through on the other side. We know what it's like, and we want more than anything for someone else to experience that. We know what it's like When we're in desperate need of a miracle, when we're on our knees, when we're distraught, when we can't sleep, when we're tossing and we're turning because we're anxious, because we need a miracle. We need something from God. We need this to come through. A medical issue, a financial issue, an emotional issue. We are sitting on our knees begging God to come through, and the nights seem long, the seconds and the minutes seem longer, and we are just in desperate need of a miracle, yet someone comes along and prays for us and welcomes God in the situation, and we just have a momentary peace. We know what that's like. And so we know the freedom and the joy that comes with it. So when we see it with our own eyes and somebody else, we feel compelled to go over there and pray with them. Why? Because we know what it's like and we know what God did through it. When you walk through a trial, when you walk through and get to the other side of it, and you see how God came through for you, it changes you. It makes an impact in your life. And you can't help but want to be the same person for somebody else, the bridge for somebody else. We live in a world where the need for God is getting higher and higher every single day. There is more and more twisted stuff. There is more and more deprivation. There's more and more isolation. There's more and more negative stuff. I don't have to tell the people in this room that. You see it with your own eyes. It's all over the place. We need God in the worst way. And so many times we sit here and we pray, God, we, just, we, we need a move of God. We need a move of God in this place. God, God. we need you to come in. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes we pray for a move of God. when he already, He's already brought one. He's brought you. Instead of praying for a move of God, what if we just realize we are that move of God? Instead of saying, God, come be a part of this community. What if we just stepped up and started doing things that he's called us to do? Because he's already sent that. He's already sent that into what our world looks like. And I'm not saying there's anything bad with that. Heck, on Wednesday, my kids and I just drove through our town. We drove past each of the schools. We drove through our, our down 47. We drove through the neighborhoods and just started praying for God to touch the hearts of our community. There's nothing wrong with that. Prayer is a huge, huge part. But what that prayer does is it realizes, you know what? I can also do something. Sometimes we use prayer as an excuse to not act. I'm going to pray about it. That's great. But when you see a need that you can meet right there, just meet it. Because God will work through that need meeting. He does and he will. All of the time. And I can tell you with 100% confidence that it's already happening when I drove through St. Francis and we just prayed and we prayed and we prayed, two things happened. One, my heart burned more and more for the people of our town. But two, I just sensed and I felt that God's already moving. So instead of asking him to come, we just got to jump on the train because he's moving. And as I'm sitting there praying and I'm thinking about, What's happening? I just want to share you some of the ways that God's moving. Because let me tell you one thing, everybody. This message is good. It's something we always need to be aware of. But I can also tell you that it's already happening in our church even. That people are seeing a desperate need. And they're acting on it. Like Bethany said, in February, I felt so strongly that God was asking our youth ministry and our church in general to purchase a water well in Africa. When you look at just the depravity of what the water situation looks like in Africa, it's crazy. I can't imagine the moral dilemma of having to go, do I give my small children wa- I mean, it's Africa. It's hot. They need water. But do you give them water because they're going to die of thirst? Or do you give them water that is full of a bunch of bacterial parasites because the animals are pooping in the water? What's that moral dilemma look like? Do I give my kid water because they need water? Or do I give them water that could give them a parasite that could inevitably kill them? What does that look like for a moral dilemma? We see the need. And I know what it's like when God's come through for me financially. And so I'm going, you know what? I want to be the reason that someone gets to experience God through that need being met. Because when we bring water to Africa, yes, they have clean water, which means there's now they can not focus on this immediate need, but now also experience Jesus himself. You can't focus on Jesus a whole lot when you're dying of starvation, dying of thirst. So when you meet those needs, it opens a door for Jesus to come through. And ultimately, that is what we're trying to do. Is we're meeting needs because they need to be met. But Jesus teaches all throughout scripture that when needs get met, the door of their soul swings wide open. Jesus healed people, people who were blind, people who were paralyzed, people who were in a much big, deep need. And he provided that need for them and then came into their life and then talked about the truth of their souls. When you meet needs, it opens the door for God to move. So go back to the water well for a second. In February, I felt compelled, like, hey, let's get a well. Here's what's crazy about this. I mentioned this a little while ago. Two years ago, our youth ministry gave four thousand dollars submissions. Sweet. Last year they did seventeen thousand. Amazing. Because they're seeing the need, and they're going, you know what? I'm going to give up my Starbucks. I'm going to sell my Xbox. I'm going to mow lawns. I'm going to do X, Y, Z because I see the need, and I want to meet it. And I'm thinking, sweet, from 4 to 17,000. Praise God, that's awesome. It's a banner year. And then February, he's like, ha, ha, 35. I was like, how in the world are we going to do this? I shared it with our students. And our leaders, and here's what I love, one of our leaders is like, hey, look, I love cars. What if we did a car show, and all the money we raised went to delight? I'm not maybe good with, you know, I maybe mean, can't bake. James, are you a baker? No. James burns toast. But he's good with cars. And so he's saying, you know what, I want to meet the need. And I want to get this money for a well, so I'm going to do a car show. Monica, our kids' pastor, has a fantastic team. Your kids down that hallway have the time of their lives. And let me tell you what happens down that hallway. It's not just babysitting. It's not just, you know what, hey, like, let's just come together. I'll keep you alive for an hour and feed you some snacks. You want that, right? Keeping you alive is, is, is a good standard. We've only lost a couple kids in the five years I've been here. So <laughs> overall, we're doing good. But I sit in staff meetings. And I hear them share the vision of their kids ministry. Do you know why? Because the stats of what your kids believe about God before they're 18 are staggering. By the time they hit 18, a lot of kids understand what they feel about God, good or bad. And they take that serious and they're going, you know what? We want to be a place back there where they get to hear about the love of Jesus in a way that's not religious and not ritualistic. And they're fantastic. And on top of all of this, they're getting in on the water well too. They're seeing the need for missions. They're seeing the need to help other people. And it's awesome. They have a jug of just loose change in there. There's a... There's a pop machine back there now because Monica's like, kids love sugar, and you know that to be true. It's awesome. Back in March, two ladies approached me and said, hey, we just have a desire to see the women's ministry here expand. We have a desire to just get together as a bunch of ladies and just go after God together and help serve other people. This last Thursday, they went to feed my starving children and 11 ladies just stuffed food for two hours. It was awesome. It was fantastic. They're seeing the needs and they're jumping in. Unlike what James is saying in the Bible, where they say they see the clothes, they see the the people without food, and they're just going, eh, good luck, everybody. The people of our church are stepping in and doing something tangible. They're meeting the needs of the people. So here is the, just, the staunch reality is that my heart is for St. Francis to experience Jesus in a real, real way, and not just St. Francis. The reason I want to do it well is not so I can sit there and go, look what we did. We're doing great things. My desire for a water well in Africa Africa is because there are going to be kids and adults that I have never met in my entire life, that I'll never meet in my entire life, that are now going to have fresh and clean water in their village, and it's going to radically change their life in a way that opens the door for God to move in their life, in a way for them to experience the real living Jesus. I didn't become a pastor because it pays well. I didn't become a pastor because everyone likes me. I didn't become a pastor because I feel important because let me tell you what, all three of those things are pretty false. My plan was to be a dentist. And I'll tell you one thing. I probably would have made a little bit more money being a dentist than I am a pastor. Just a small little difference. But the reality is, the reason I did it is because I so desperately want people to experience Jesus. Jesus came into my life when I was 13, and I was lost, I was broken, I was alone, I felt like I had no security or no foundation, and when Jesus came into my life, it wasn't just like overnight, like, oh, cool, all my problems are fixed. No, I was still in the mess. But in the midst of the mess, Jesus was there for me, and he brought peace, strength, and a foundation I never had before. I felt whole for the first time in my life, and that experience and that feeling is something I think about 14 years later. It changed me from the inside out. It changed the trajectory of my life. It led me to met the most amazing woman in the world that I love with all my heart. It led me to having the two most beautiful and amazing kids that I couldn't imagine having. It gave me a purpose and a joy in my life I couldn't possibly imagine without what he did in my life. And so now every single time I live, every single day I have, I go back to that moment when I was 13 of how Jesus changed my life from the inside out. In that moment and for the rest of my life. It changed me, and that's why I do what I do, because I want other people to have that same exact feeling. I want them to know how Jesus can come into their life. And there's a lot of stuff we got to peel back, because there's been a lot of messed up stuff that churches have done trying to do the good thing, and it's caused harm. So instead of telling people to love Jesus, I want to show them that I love Jesus. Instead of saying, you know what, like just believe and just, I'm going to shove this down your throat. How about we just start meeting the needs and let Jesus speak for himself? He doesn't need for us to prove that he's real. He can do that on his own. We just got to be a vessel that allows him to do that. So let me tell you what God's on the move. I've met so many of you today that are first-time guests of ours, and I love having you. Welcome. Burn out your cup of tea. Totally cool. But there are a group of people in here that are loving Jesus and going after him, and plenty who aren't there yet. And they're all welcomed in this place. But God's doing something new, and I'm excited. I want to close with this. Our staff is going through the book of Nehemiah. Old Testament book. I'll give you a really quick Spark Notes version because your kids are getting antsy back there and they're ready to go home. But Nehemiah was from Jerusalem, a thriving, prosperous town that was full of people who loved God. He went to be a cupbearer for the king, which means his job was literally to drink every cup that came to the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. How about that for a job? Hey, drink this to make sure it's not poisoned. If you die, I'll just get a new one. But Nehemiah is serving the king in a different land. All of a sudden, his brother comes, and he goes, hey, what's up, man? How's back home? Terrible. Destroyed. What? Destroyed? What do you mean destroyed? Whole thing's level. Not a single soul left in the place. And it says that Nehemiah, for days, was so distraught, so discouraged, that he just couldn't even eat. He goes, I'm going to do something. So he, he, he corrals a bunch of people and does a bunch of awesome things and, and does a bunch of just fantastic things. to get a bunch of people and he starts to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And here's what I think is so cool. Here's what I want to end with. When you read Nehemiah chapter 3 and they're rebuilding the wall, it talks about how each person works on the part of the wall that's immediately in front of where they live. They walk out their front door. They see the need for this wall and they start working on this wall. My youth pastor said it this way, the best. I thought this was one of the best things he's ever said. He said, so many times we try and think outside of the box of how to make an inference in our world, make a difference in this, in this community. He goes, what if we started thinking inside the box? What if we started using the things that we're good at, the, the gifts that we have to help other people? I can't sing to save my life. I, I can't even try. My wife is a, is a musical genius. She's awesome. And when she sings, she gets embarrassed when I sing. I'm sorry. I'm a terrible singer, but I can speak. So I'm not going to try and be a musician because that's not what I'm called to be. I'm called to be a speaker. You might not be good at music. You might not be good at being with people, but you're really good at fixing stuff. You might not really be good with cars, but you're really good with working with wood. You might not be good at that, but you're really good at this. If we start to utilize the gifts that God's put in our life for his glory, our world will look different. So here's what we're going to do. We got to get ready, guys, because I believe this church is going to explode in a good way. I believe God's moving in our community, and we got to be ready for it. Something I I tell our staff all the time is, if our church was twice the size of it is now, what would we need to do different? And the universal thing right now is we need more people to help. Our worship team today, we had one person sick, another person who couldn't make it. And so, Crystal, who was singing, who did a fantastic job today, wasn't even supposed to be on team. (laughs) whether it's kids, whether it's maintenance, whether it's security, we have spots for every single person on our team, every single thing. And so here's what I'll say. A lot of you guys are like, I'm not good at a bunch of that stuff, or I'm I'm super busy or type of that thing. Along the back wall when you leave, there's a whole bunch of descriptions, a whole bunch of things about the different areas of our church that we would love for you to get plugged in in. Here's what I would ask of you. Look at them. You might be like, I'm too busy. I'm not good at that. just, Just do me a favor. Just look because there's all kinds of flexibility, all kinds of diversity back there. And let me tell you what, God's getting ready to move. And the coolest part is, is when we get to meet those needs, when we get to be a part of what God's doing, we get to share in the, in the joy. We get to share in the cool thing, that, in the cool feeling it feels like when somebody else gets it. So on your way out, there's a big back table back there. Look at the different descriptions. Look at the different areas of our church. If anything sticks out to you, write your name down. You're not committing to anything. You're not saying, oh, gosh, they got me now. It's just allowing us to have a conversation. Put your name down on four different sheets. If you're interested in coffee, if you're interested in security, if you're interested in youth ministry, put all of it down. and See which one you like. But I would love to see the people of our church dig into what God's going to do because I can tell you with 100% confidence he's moving And we got to jump on the train (laughs) because he's moving in a big way. So you pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to earn. We don't have to work for your love. We don't have to work to get into heaven. We just already have that when we say yes to you. And so, God, for those in this room, even as I'm speaking, maybe they've had a rough start, a rough go of it. And they're just ready to say, you know what, Jesus, I want to accept that gift of salvation. I want to accept just, I I know I've got some stuff in my life, but I'm just sick of it. And I I just, I want to know you. I want you at the center of my heart. With all eyes closed, if that's just you, would you as an act of faith, again, just an indicator of what you feel on the inside, would you just raise your hand up? I want to pray with you and for you. If that's you in this place, I see him. God, would you be with us? would you continue just moving our hearts knowing that even if we sin, even if we mess up, it's okay because you still love us. There's always a fresh start with you. But God, for everyone else in this place, God, would you challenge us? Would you show us how we can meet the needs of our community, meet the needs of the people in our life? Jesus, would you help us have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts to understand what you're doing? And enable us to act them out and to live it out. God, be with us. Be with our teams. I ask, God, that we would continue just to move in the direction you want us to move. We're not doing this own thing. We're just following you. So continue to lead us. Continue to direct us. Continue to empower us to what you want to do. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Continue just to move in the direction you want us to move. We're not doing this own thing. We're just following you. So continue to lead us, continue to direct us, continue to empower us to what you want to do. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. This has been a podcast of the Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.